You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I will welcome everybody to uh, to our next session in uh, the uh, Beatitudes. I almost said good morning, everyone. Yes. Uh, th- now, this could actually mess with my mind a little bit because I'm doing... Tuesday, Beatitudes, and then Sunday, I'm doing Sermon on the Mount, and this Sunday, I'm doing two Beatitudes. This morning, I'm doing, or yeah, see, tonight, I'm doing one Beatitude. Yeah, it's going to, I'm going to get a little confused, but it'll be okay. All right, well, why don't we begin with prayer, and we will dive right into our our night's uh, session. Jesus, we come before you. And we recognize that you are the smartest person who ever walked this planet, that you are God, that you are life. And our lives will only work the way they're supposed to work when they are in sync with you and your ways. And so we come before you tonight. Many of us have had busy days and our minds are racing. And we're here tonight, and but our minds are still somewhere else. And so we pray that you would turn our hearts, that you would turn our gaze towards you. And then help us to listen to what you say to us tonight. I pray that you would speak through me, that your words would go out and not return empty or void, and that your truth would go out. And then draw us to know how to respond to your teaching tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the big questions uh, that shows up in this class is, if you want to know what God is like, read the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to know what his desires are for our lives, read the Sermon on the Mount. What kind of people is he training up? Well, it's in the Sermon, all on display in the Sermon on the Mount. The prophet Isaiah says, Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, says, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. And so tonight we're going to be carrying on in our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, It was interesting. I was talking to somebody uh, the other day. And we were talking about people who, um, when they look at the Christian faith, they often think of, Um, you know, what would it be like if knowing that if, you know, if I asked Jesus into my life, if I submit my life to Jesus, yes, if I got hit by a truck, I get to go to heaven. Um, why not just hold off? Were we talking about that? We may have been talking about, um, why not just hold off until just the moment, you know, you're going to die. You see the truck coming or whatever it happens to be. Uh, you're on your deathbed just before you're going to die. Live however you want, but just before you die, ask Jesus into your life. And that's kind of a a win-win, they said, you know, because you could live however you want and still get to have eternal life with Jesus. Now, I've heard people ask me this question before. Have you ever heard this question? Yeah. So just for a moment, just for fun. Now, some of you are new and and, and you're like, okay, what are we going to do here? Just talk briefly around your tables. 
what would you say to some, such a person? Say, hey, you know what? I'm going to just wait to the last minute. I'll ask Jesus into my life. And then I get to go to heaven. And in the meantime, I get to live my life however I want to live. What would you say to this person if they brought this up to you? Okay. I'm just going to give you a couple of minutes, just around your table and in cyberspace, you guys, uh, on the chat line, chat space, what would you say to this person? What are some thoughts that came to mind around your tables? There's one obvious one, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah, you don't know. You can see the truck, but you can't see a heart attack necessarily, right? David, John says it. God has to draw us. What if he doesn't draw you? What if he says, you've been playing around all, uh, all these years? I've tried to get you in. Yeah. Maybe he won't draw you that Maybe at the end, you're, you're so busy or you're so angry or you're so whatever that, that that's not actually on, on your mind. Yeah. What else? That was very good. Yeah. It presupposes that the Christian life is miserable and that it's much better to, you know, pursue, yeah, to pursue the, the way of uh, highway to hell. <laughs> I was thinking of the lyrics of highway to hell. I mean, it, it, to pursue that kind of life because that's, you know, that's where the party's at, right? We've talked about that, so, which is a big, presumption and it's not true what else yeah and that's a that's what you said laurie um that um you know is it is it true or are you just playing a game and jesus knows your heart yeah here's the other thought i had like if you lived your life just as no interest in the things of God, no interest in Jesus, walking according to Jesus, nothing. And then just before you die, it's like, Jesus, help me out. Okay, let, now you're in e an eternal space in the presence of Jesus. Here's a question. Would you even recognize yourself? Like, would you recognize yourself? Because now you're 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 a new person. Yeah, new heavens, new earth, new body, new life. No more tears, no more sin, no more sorrow. Would you even know who you are? Maybe not, because you'd be so different. And so that's, I mean, that goes to the point that many of you have, have actually hinted at is the, the fact that eternal life, as I was saying on the weekend, begins now. Jack, you just pointed that out. Eternal life begins now. And so part of our life with Jesus is training ourselves to develop a taste for the things of God so that when we stand before Jesus, we will stand before him as a friend, as one that we know and we know who knows us. Otherwise, it'd just be, well, it'd be terrifying, actually. Be terrifying. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure if we know everything, though. I'm not sure if we gain omniscience. I think we know many things that we don't know. 
Yeah. But what, to what degree that is, I'm not so sure yet. Uh, and I'm, I, I mean that. I, I just, I'm not sure. It's kind of a, still an open question. We'll certainly know more than we know now. But uh, what would that be like? And if we had the mind of God, would, would we, again, would we even recognize ourselves? Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what about people who live by good Christian values, but are agnostic? Yeah, I mean, um, that's, that's a question. That's a whole nother question. Um, yeah, I mean, it seems to be what scripture teaches that we have to call upon the name of Jesus. That seems to matter quite a bit. Like Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And so I think how we live our life might prepare our hearts in this lifetime to turn towards Jesus, for sure. Um, but when we stand before him, if we've never seen him before, and we don't know anything about him, we're really at his mercy. We really have to stand before him and, 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 uh, and are under his judgment, actually. A big question. I just realized by asking this question, I've just shifted our attention to heaven and eternal life, and which has like a gazillion questions, uh, really good questions. So that's actually another class that I've taught before. Maybe we could teach that again, maybe going into the fall. Or... How many of you ever took that class with me? Heaven, hell, and everything in between. Yeah, so it was a fun class. Boy, we cover a lot of stuff in that one. But tonight we're going to turn our attention to um the beatitudes which really is training our hearts for heaven training our hearts to spend eternity with god and it begins now and so let's look at the beatitudes if you have matthew chapter 5 we're going to be looking at this each week seeing the crowds jesus went up to the mountain and when he sat down his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Um, just before we dive into our beatitude tonight, I just want to say just a couple words about verses 1 and 2. Um, we read, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. So his disciples, I'm guessing, are in front of him, but there's crowds that are gathered to hear what he has to say. And he opened his mouth and he taught them. Um, we, it's easy to skip over this and get right into the blessings, right? Right into the Beatitudes. Um, but these first two verses are really important. Uh, they're loaded with dynamite in many ways. Because we read that Jesus went onto a mountain. Now, on one hand, he could have just gone up the mountain so he'd have a better, he could project his voice better, right? It's like, 
you think that it would be a good spot to stand on top of something and your your voice would be projected quite well. And maybe you'd give them a better vantage point of the crowds. But I suspect there's something more going on. In fact, the early church fathers all picked up on this, that there's more going on than meets the eye. In many ways, what's being conveyed here is quite poignant. We have a picture, we have a picture, and we got to get this, of Jesus as a new and better Moses. Or more accurately, the fulfillment of Moses and his ministry of revelation to God's people. As Moses ascended the mountain, as he sat on the mountain, later descended the mountain, he taught the people the Torah, the, the, the law for the newly constituted people of God. And Jesus goes up the mountain and presents the fulfillment of the law in the Sermon on the Mount. And just as an aside, have you ever noticed that some of the um, important similarities between the life of Moses and the life of Jesus? Can you think of any? Any similarities that come to mind? Yeah, Thomas? Um, well, there's quite a period of silence. There's also quite a period of uh, the Israelites being slavery before Moses. So that period of silence in the almost the adolescence and the small, the kind of the growing up years kind of thing? Oh, and for Israel itself, yeah. So... No, that's good. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that one. Yeah, good. What else? Anything else? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The slaughter of children, innocence connected to the birth. Anything else? Yeah, leading people out of slavery into freedom. Yeah. Both their lives were almost extinguished by a tyrant, right? Um, both have to flee the land, only later to return. Both were in the wilderness. Both fasted 40 days and were tested by God. Both passed through the Jordan River, though Moses died just, just before this happens. And there's, there's an interesting parallel. I was looking at this today. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 1, it's just a language that's used. It says, when he came down from the mountain, the language is, when he came down from the mountain, there's a direct echo to Exodus 34, 29, where it says, when Moses came down from the mountain, from Mount Sinai, and so I also think that there's a direct connection between um, this mountain that we find Jesus on and Mount Sinai and the person of Moses. And as we make our way through the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to realize that in ascending the mountain and sitting down to teach, Jesus is revealing something about himself. He's revealing himself as a new and final arbiter of God's law. The sermon that we're going to receive and the Sermon on the Mount is going to stand. Now, the language is important, is to stand in fulfillment to what, to what Moses revealed. Um, Jesus came to fulfill the law. Now, what does that mean? We'll talk about that in a few weeks. Oh, actually, we won't. We'll talk about it on Sunday morning, though. <laughs> Okay, maybe we'll touch on it too. See, this is how confused I am. I'm like, well, I'm doing the Sermon on the Mount. No, I'm not. I'm just doing the Beatitudes. So, but we, we, we will get to it. We will touch on it. If I don't, remind it to me. One other thing is last week, remember we were talking about the word blessed, right? This word uh, makarios, 
and how we should translate it. Uh, what was people's favorite translation? I still like you lucky bums, but. Um, okay, so I did some more reading on this. And so you, I, again, I'm reminding you, I am a fellow sojourner and I came across his other book. I'm like, whoa, this is really good. So basically what I learned, I'm just telling you what I've learned. So I came across a really interesting approach to understanding the word blessed. And what this guy was saying, um, his name's uh, Jonathan um, Pennington. He's a, he's a really interesting writer on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, um, the, the problem with the word uh, blessed is that we're trying to use one English word to describe something that's, that's quite complex. And the one English word doesn't quite cut it. Because in this word, makarios, are a number of themes, a number of ideas. So here's some of the ideas. One of the ideas is this idea that the one who is blessed, it's a blessing, but it's a blessing not in the sense of, well, I feel really blessed, like in a, I'm, you know, that's so fortunate, or I'm so lucky, or I'm so, it's to be blessed, it means to have the favor of God, the God of Israel, okay? And so there's a tangible, um, flourishing life that's rooted here. And, and there's a sense, so when we read blessed, there's a sense of a priestly blessing. A priestly blessing. Remember what a priest is. A priest is a, it stands between God and man, right? And it, so it's a priestly blessing that's, that's um, caught within this word blessed. But the other thing that's involved in it is this idea that um, is, 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 the, uh, is the language of wisdom literature. And how many of you have ever read the book of Proverbs, right? Some of you, most of you read the book of Proverbs or dipped into the book of Proverbs. One of the themes in the early on is, is the father speaking to his son. My son, if you walk in this way, it will go well for you. If you go this way, it will not go well for you. And so what uh, this uh, fellow Jonathan Pennington says, he says, that sense is captured in this word makarios, is this idea that it, it's almost like a wisdom literature. It's like, hey, this if, if you follow this way, if you live this way, if you enter into this, this is a way of life. And the opposite is also true. If you choose not to live in this way, it's a way of death. And so you have an echo even of um, Psalm 1, right? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of the wicked or sit in the seat of uh, scoffers or, no, walk in the ways of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of mockers or scoffers. But instead, his delight is in the law, and on his law he meditates day and night. So it's this picture of the two, the two ways, right? And so all this is captured in um this word makarios and you can see why the one word doesn't quite cut it does it but when you look at that i think it makes it quite rich it's this rich sense of blessing god god's blessing upon us but also the sense of hey we have a we we, we need to walk in the way of life and avoid the way of death and that's all captured in this and then we come across the first beatitude, and that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. And the first beatitude casts a vision for life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, this first beatitude, as one guy puts it, he says, beatitudes are a description and commendations of a good life. They give us a picture, but we're invited into this picture. And so we get this picture, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it's, a, it's an invitation that Jesus gives us. He says, enter into this, blessed are the poor in spirit. For if you enter into the poor of spirit, yours is the kingdom of heaven. And it's just this, um, what came to mind when I was thinking about this, this invitation into something, into this big picture of life. I was thinking about, uh, and maybe I shouldn't, but there's this story. Have you guys read um, um, Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis? Some of you, anybody read that? Any any hands a cup? No? Um, there's this great scene at the beginning because there's a painting on the wall and this, these two kids are looking at this painting on the wall and they say, oh, that ship, that ship in the painting looks like a Narnia ship, right? It looks like the ship from the land that we used to visit this, you know, in another dimension. And sure enough, the ship starts moving and the waves start moving and the wind starts blowing. They're like, whoa, this is magic. And before you know it, what happens? Yeah, they get sucked right into the story. They become part of the story. At first, they're an observer, but then they're brought in. And that's the picture of the Beatitudes. We can't say, oh, blessed are the poor in spirit. Isn't that nice, the poor in spirit, the meek? Oh, they have a rough time, yeah. Um, no, it's, it's, it's we have to enter into the story. As this guy, Jonathan Pennington, puts it, he says, Jesus is offering and inviting his hearers into a way of being in the world that will result in their true and full flourishing now and in the age to come. So Jesus is not giving us a list of heroes, heroes of the faith, because there are no heroes of the faith. <laughs> um, he's just saying this is who the people of God are. The people of God are ones who are poor in spirit. And it's all premise on the gospel. Remember the gospel, the inbreaking of God's kingdom, the inbreaking of God's reign begins when? Now, begins now. The realities of God's kingdom have broken, and Jesus says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And one of the signs of the inbreaking of God's kingdom is that you and I are invited to become beatitude people. And the first quality of a beatitude person is that we are poor in spirit. So what does this mean? Well, Jesus, what he's doing is he's addressing something that I think a lot of Christians struggle with. A lot of Christians struggle with looking at the Christian life and looking what the Christian life entails and then deciding that they can't do it. When I look at the Christian life, when I see all that goes with the Christian life, I have to deny myself and take up my cross and follow Jesus and have this attitude among yourself. Think of others better than yourself. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. Oh, I don't have that, let alone patience, kindness, goodness, let alone faithfulness, just uh, gentleness and self-control. You know, I, have, I got none of those fruit, right? This Christian life, just seems really hard. And yeah, I get it. I guess some of you are really into the whole holiness thing. But not this guy. This is just too hard. And so I know I said I wanted to follow Jesus, but I'm out. It's just too difficult. It's, it's beyond me. 
I cannot live up to this. Anybody ever feel that way? Yeah? Me too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes, yeah, I mean, there's been times in my life where you're just like, oh, this is just really hard. I, I shared the one example of this one church. I won't say the church, but uh, there's a church in Toronto with banners. And on the banners, it says, do more, pray more, give more. I'm like, ah, oh, fine. You know, let somebody else do this. This is just tiring. And can you imagine seeing that every day in this church? It's like, do more, give more, pray, you know. Oh, my goodness. And so here is a good news in the first beatitude. If you feel that you do not have what it takes to make it in the Christian life, you're going to be just fine. That's why the Beatitudes begin here. The first Beatitude is a key to understanding everything. In fact, it's, it's, a, it's a key to understanding the Sermon on the Mount. The reality is there's no one, no one in the kingdom of heaven who is not poor in spirit. Blessed. Blessed are you. No, uh, sorry. <laughs> That's so bad. <laughs> okay. Let's dive into this a little bit more. So what do we mean? What does being poor in spirit mean? Well, there's two words that are usually translated poor. The first word is this word, um, penes, and this is a word that means poor, means really poor, it means having nothing, no property, no money. It means that you have to work all the time just to survive. So have no property, no money, you have to work all the time just to survive. And some of you are thinking, wow, that describes me. I guess I am blessed. Yeah. <laughs> this. This Sermon on the Mount thing's not so hard, right? But there's a second word to describe poor. And that is the word uh, tokoi. And what that means is to be so destitute that you need to beg from others. Those in this condition have nothing and they know it. Put differently, they are so far down that the only way is up. And it's this second word that is used in this beatitude. Daryl Johnson, a lot of what I'm learning from is from our man, Daryl Johnson, who's a, a preacher in Vancouver. And do you know what the cool thing is? I arranged sorry i know it's more for me sorry you guys would be like ah, i should finish the sentence before you get your hopes up but i arranged for daryl to come and speak to all of our pastors who are preaching through the sermon on the mount and so we're going to meet with him tomorrow morning and he's going to walk us through give us some ideas on how best to preach through this so yeah sorry so for us it's really good but for you, it will be good, too, because we'll tell you everything we learn, okay? So <laughs> he's come here before many times oh, on Tuesday nights. Oh, I'll ask him. I'll ask. I'll, Sebastian, ask the question. Okay. So, yeah. And yes, that's right. We can sell his books. Yeah. Now, it's the second word 
that uh, that's used. And so Daryl Johnson, he translates it. He says, it could read, blessed are the destitute in spirit, the beggarly poor in spirit. To be a beggar means that there's nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to your handouts I cling. I have empty hands, empty pockets, em no wallet, nothing of value. All I have are empty hands. I cannot offer anything in return for the basic sustenance of life. That's what this word means. But here's the thing. If that is where you're at today in your life with God, it's like, God, I got nothing. I got nothing in the tank. I bring nothing to the table. Jesus says to you, well done. Congratulations. That's it. You want to flourish? You want to flourish in the Christian life? You want to enter this new humanity? That is a posture for approaching God. The living God is in sync with those who have nothing and they know it. Oh, an upside down kingdom, isn't it? Now, some of you may be thinking when you look at this passage in, in, in uh, Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It, there's a slightly different way of expressing this in the book of Luke. How does it go in the book of Luke? Anybody know? Luke says something slightly different, Thomas. Just blessed are the poor. Not the poor in spirit. So what's going on here? Is, did, did Matthew spiritualize Luke's teaching? Are they saying different things? Blessed are the poor versus blessed are the poor in spirit? I don't think so. I don't think there's a difference. Because if you make your way through the Bible, you'll know, you'll know that one of the things is that God seems to have a preferential treatment for the little guy, uh, for the poor, for the marginalized, for the powerless. Look at the story of Rahab. The story of Ruth, I was going through them today, uh, all the widows that we come across, the poor that show up throughout the Bible. God sees the poor, the marginalized. He loves them, he cares for them, and he helps them. But if you read through the Bible, to be materially poor is never a good thing. It's not a good thing. If you read the book of Proverbs, you will never come across the idea that poverty is the ideal condition. Nor is riches, by the way. The Bible nowhere teaches us that it is good to be materially impoverished. The poor man is no closer to God than, than the rich man. Poverty is no guarantee of spirituality. And so material poverty is not celebrated. We read in Proverbs 30, for example, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, oh, who is, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So it's not necessarily a good thing to be poor. So why in Luke are the poor celebrated? Well, I think it's because the same thing. The poor tend to know more than the rich that they need help. They know that without help, they are in a heap of trouble. There's one hope and one hope only, and that is God. And that is why people, um, famous people like Mother Teresa, spend so much time with the poor. She knew that their hearts were more receptive to God than the self-sufficient. And some of you 
who've been in this place, you know that when you hit rock bottom, when you are in dire straits, you are much more open to help than any other time. I mean, I can, I got so many stories. I remember I've shared this before. I had to leave China very quickly and go to Hong Kong. Hong Kong was British back then. Um, and I had to get to Hong Kong. I had no money. And I knew how desperate I was. I, another time I, it's always me leaving China, but I, the other time I had to leave China, I had a, I didn't have enough money even to get to Hong Kong. I just had enough to get on a boat. And I was on a boat with my, my with my friend, and we and we came into into the harbor, and I had I had seven dollars to my name, seven dollars, and I just remember going, "What am I going to do?" I was desperate. I was I had nothing, nothing, nothing at all, and I had no, and so I had to appeal to a friend, "Hey, can I stay with you? I'll, I'll try to earn some money and pay." But I was. I was just desperate to receive. And some of you, I'm sure, can tell stories of your own. And so it's, it's, it's interesting. I read this this week that in the Bible, the opposite of poor is not rich. You know that? I didn't know that. I just learned the opposite of poor in the Bible is not rich. The opposite of poor is violent. Isn't that interesting? And at first I thought, opposite of poor is violent. That doesn't make sense until I thought about it a bit more. And then it does make sense. Because to be violent is to take matters into your own hands, right? Um, it's funny because I don't see my desire for control that way. But in a way, it is kind of violent. It's like, you know what? God, step aside. I got this. I'm in a, I'm in, I'm in a pickle. I will fix this problem. I will solve this problem. And there is a violence to this. It's not, it's not a God, I, I, I'm completely dependent upon you. It's out of the way, I got this. And so I can see that. I can make things happen. And so the issue with the rich in the Bible is not that they are rich. It's not the fact that they are rich. That's, that's because there are rich people in the Bible and they're not all evil. They're not all bad. And throughout church history, just to get geeky for a little bit, but some of the key figures that be lay behind key revivals in church history were very, very rich women, in particular women and men. The issue comes when one is no is when one is so self-sufficient that they no longer think they need God. That's a problem. Are you tracking with me so far? Okay, now let's have a fun question. I think it's a fun question. How does just life in the modern world undermine our ability to enter into this beatitude? How does life in the modern world undermine our ability or, or, or undermine the invitation to enter into this beatitude? I'll give you a couple minutes around your table to talk about this. Again, how does life in the modern world and all that goes with it undermine our invitation to enter into this reality, this beatitude reality. I mean, one of the things we we're saying, and I heard you guys a lot of um, conversation around the table, it's just one of the things about, that the modern world does is it, it doesn't mean God does not exist, but it just kind of pushes them off to the side. Um, he's just, he's eclipsed. 
And he's, he's really the last resort. If I, I try this, try this, try this, I got nothing left. All right, then I'll turn to God. Um, and, and a lot of the things in our culture and in the modern world are not bad. Don't get me wrong. They're not bad. Like the hospitals are great. Medicine is great. Technology is great. These are good things. But my point is simply that they, they do affect this poverty of spirit that Jesus is teaching us. And, and, and I remember this one, one writer puts it this way. She says, um, she goes, any, any problem that you can throw money at to solve is not a real problem. So she said. Now, the problem is, is those who are self-sufficient think that they can handle whatever comes their way through, through their, their means, through their bank account. But when a pandemic comes, <laughs> when the unexpected happens, when the flood comes, you know, when the lower mainland is cut off from the rest of Canada because of flooding, then things begin to change. And it begins to expose what you're relying on. So the poor do not enter the kingdom of God simply because they're poor. No, the poor enter the kingdom of heaven because they realize on their own, they can't make it. They need help. They're utterly helpless on their own. And so this one guy, um, he says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, for Matthew, the poor in spirit are those who find themselves waiting empty-handed upon God alone for their hope and their deliverance. And Dale Bruner, I like Dale Bruner. He says, the Sermon on the Mount is spiritually speaking, actually a sermon from the valley. It starts slow. It starts with those who feel very unlike mountains. <laughs> so the question for us tonight is, um, where are we? Like, are, are we bankrupt? Are we spiritually bankrupt? Do you feel that you don't have it all together? Do you struggle with imposter syndrome? If, if that's where you're at tonight, Jesus says, way to go. Way to go. Because you see it. You recognize it. You're down in the valley, and the only way to go is up. And there's a lot of truth. And we, you guys know this. I mean, there's a lot of truth that, you know, when you talk to people who struggle with various forms of addiction, not just drug addiction, but could be all sorts of different issues, um, that often you have to hit what? Rock bottom before there can be any change. Um, I mean, that was my story. I mean, I had to hit rock bottom when I was living overseas. I was... I had to get to the point where it's just like, I have nothing. I have nothing left. My life, the way it's going, is not going to end well. It really wasn't going to end well. And so my great prayer was, God, if you're real, I'm in. Like, it was just sort of, I got nothing. And many of you I know can tell the same story. But here's the danger of the Christian life. Because once we hit rock bottom, and once we cry out to Jesus, Jesus, help me, save me. And we come and we and we and we cry out to him from a place of poverty. And Jesus, in his grace, he rescues us. And then it always happens. Then in our mind is like, okay, I'm rescued. Okay, I think I got this now. <laughs> like it, it, it always happens, doesn't it? It always is like, thanks, Jesus. I think I got this. Yeah. Well, I'm starting to get a get, get the hang of things, right? I'm starting to get the hang of this Christian life. Uh, I can, you know, there's all sorts of right techniques. If I can just apply them properly to my life, I can be a seven-step 
<laughs> seven steps towards a better Sermon on the Mount life kind of guy. And, uh, you know, and sometimes it's, I hear, yeah, I should, maybe I should. But sometimes I hear a lot of Christians, they go on about, you know, taking the world for Jesus and advancing the kingdom. And, and I get it. But sometimes it's a lot of, yeah, we got this kind of thing. And I'm not so sure about that. Jesus's message tonight, right from the get-go, stops us in our tracks. You and I bring nothing to the table. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the first beatitude, the first beatitude is all about recognizing our emptiness. And it's interesting, the rest of the beatitudes are all about something you have, you're, you're meek. Um, you're merciful. But our starting point is before you can be full, you need to be empty. Before you can fill a wineskin with new wine, you need to get rid of the old wineskins and start again with a new one. And that seems to be a theme in the gospel. You have to tear down before you can build up. So second question, that's what poor in spirit means. The second question I want to look at is why is being poor in the spirit a sign of God's kingdom in breaking kingdom? The new human... The new humanity that is described as being poor in spirit is not a natural thing. It's not a skill. Being poor in spirit is also not a self-deprecating attitude. Oh, I'm so poor in spirit. Um, put differently, and some of you will know this word, to be poor in spirit is not pusillanimity. <laughs> Do you remember that word? Pusillanimity is like a timid hesitation to live out the calling that God has given you. Yeah. So to be poor in spirit is not to go, oh, I'm no good at this. I'm bad. You know, I just, no, to be poor in spirit means to be grabbed by the gospel. To have turned away, right, repentance, to turn away from wrong paths and to synchronize your life with the way of Jesus. It means to receive the grace that's on hand for us. And this grace is received when you and I fix our eyes on who Jesus truly is. See, if when we fix our eyes on Jesus, when we look to Jesus, when we look to Jesus and, we, and our eyes are fixed on who Jesus is, do you know what happens? A couple things happen. One, as we look to Jesus, we get a pretty good sense of who we are. Would you agree? When we fix our eyes on Jesus, we have a pretty good sense of our own spiritual state. And what kind of state are we in? Well, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, one of the things you need to realize is when we look at Jesus, we realize that we are loved. Maybe you thought I was going to go into a different direction. But one of the things you need to realize, when you look at Jesus, you realize you are loved by the one who matters. And we need to keep this truth in front of us. If you really know how much Jesus loves you, let me speak first. If, if I truly keep in mind how much Jesus loves me, for the most part, I'd be a very different person. A lot of the old habits that I fall into, I wouldn't fall into. If I really knew how much Jesus loved me, I wouldn't be into vainglory, right? You guys at that table were talking about the seven deadly sins, how they keep showing up. I wouldn't be into vainglory. I wouldn't be into, into image uh, 
uh, maintaining an image to impress you kind of thing or image control. Because if I'm loved by the one that matters, I don't care what you think. I really don't. And I'm not going to kind of adjust my profile to impress you. Jesus loves me. I think that's enough. When we come face to face with the one who, who Jesus is and what he's done for us, when we really get that, we enter into this poor, this poor in spirit state. And our prayers, when we really know who Jesus is, when we really know what Jesus has done for us, I'll tell you, our prayers more and more will sound like this. Lord Jesus Christ, son of the living God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Which is the ancient prayer that the ancients have prayed for centuries. Lord Jesus Christ, son of the living God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. It's uh, known as the Jesus prayer, actually. When we, when we look at who, what Jesus has done, we realize what the Bible teaches. Yeah, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that includes me. And the problem is, is that, uh, well, here's the problem. Because if I keep my eyes fixed on Jesus, and I know Jesus is who he is, and I know what he's done for me, if I keep my eyes fixed on that, I'm actually okay because I know that I'm loved. That's good. There's freedom in that. I know that I'm a sinner, that I fall short, but I've been saved, I've been redeemed, I've been all the things we looked at when we looked at the cross, I've been adopted, all these things because of what Jesus has done. I know all that, and that's good. But if I take my eyes off the cross, for a little while. Then what happens? Well, then I get into a bit of self-image control. And my focus is not so much oh, who I am vis-a-vis -vis Jesus. It becomes who I am. Who am I going to pick on vis-a-vis -vis Chris? Honestly, that's what happens. When I take my eyes off Jesus is, okay, who am I? Who, who am I? vis-a-vis -vis Brent. Well, <laughs> you know, I'm doing better than Bob in accounting. I mean, everybody knows Bob. Nobody likes Bob in accounting, right? So compared to Bob, you know, I'm pretty godly. I'm pretty, you know, you know, because Bob, nobody, Bob, he's annoying, right? And so we start measuring ourselves and puffing ourselves up in comparison to others, which is what I said on the weekend, that's self-righteousness. The moment our eyes go away from Jesus, we become self-righteous because we start measuring ourselves by others. And it's not hard, honestly, it's not hard to find somebody who's a little worse off than you and say, well, at least I'm not this person. And this runs deep in our hearts. When I look upon Jesus, I'm like Peter. What does Peter say? Get away from me. I'm a sinful man. Right? Right? Peter's overwhelmed when he encounters just who Jesus is. Get away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. And there's stories of people all throughout history of people who just come to that place where just like, I, I got nothing. I got nothing. I need your grace. I need, I need, I, I bring nothing to the table. I, I am completely dependent upon you, Jesus. And one of my favorite guys is the guy um, that I often talk a lot about <laughs> is this guy, John Newton, 18th century. 
uh, Brad and I, Pastor Brad and I went to go hear a, um, there was a, a book launch by Bruce Hindmarsh. Um, he's just written a new book on on uh, John Newton. It's, it's kind of interesting. He, he co-wrote it with this guy who writes a lot of popular books, like novels and stuff like that, or, and even mo- movie scripts, I think. Anyhow, the book is, um, it's like a novelization of the story of John Newton. John Newton is an 18th century former slave trader, a horrible life, no interest in God, lived his life um, for himself, almost dies a whole bunch of time. He's a sailor and he's a tough, tough sailor. And um, he gets, his life is just, it's, it's incredible, his life. Uh, but he has no interest in God whatsoever. His mom was a Christian. And when he was young, he had some faith, but that all went out the window the moment he started sailing first with his dad and then just on his own. And uh, he and he wasn't even a good sailor. He gets caught twice. He gets, you know, um, um, press ganged one time onto a ship. And the other time he was caught uh, for deserting his ship. And he gets, uh, he, even though he's a captain, he was demoted and he was whipped. And he's just, just, and he was a drunkard. Um, he was a guy who just lived for the moment. One time his, his hat flew off and went over the edge of the ship and he was ready to jump over to get it. And they're like, oh, don't do this because he, he didn't care. And his, his model in life was never deliberate. Don't think too much about things. And that's how he lived his life. But it's, I mean, an interesting story is that he ends up off the coast of Africa at one point, And he's supposed to be working in a slave plantation and he ends up being enslaved by an African, African, an African woman. And he ends up being a, a slave and he has nothing. Finally, he gets um, picked up and he gets brought back to England. He carries on working uh, uh, as a, as a, on a slave ship. But then one, one thing that happens. So one time he's, he's, um, he's on the ship and they're heading towards Ireland and a storm breaks out. And the storm is so strong, and he's called to go up onto the deck. And he's about to go up on the deck. And one of his fellow sailors says, hang on, no, let me go. So this fellow sailor pushes Newton out of the way, says, I'll go up. And he goes up, and he gets washed overboard. And Newton says, that could have been me. That should have been me. And the captain says, we, we are in deep trouble. We This ship is going to sink. And then Newton says to him, he goes, if the ship sinks, then Lord have mercy upon us all. And he paused. And he realized that was the first time he invoked the name of the Lord in his life, like for, for since he was a kid. And he started reading um, Thomas Akempis, The Imitation of Christ, and it began to speak to him. But the story for Newton, which, which is so, I find just so fascinating, is that uh, eventually he ends up, he has... Um, struggles with some form of epilepsy while he's in Liverpool. So he can no longer um, work on slave ships or even lead a slave ship. Um, he had, takes a role of a tide surveyor in London, in, in Liverpool, sorry. And his faith begins to grow and he ends up in, in a small group. He ends up in, in community and he ends up discerning about being a pastor. Now, the interesting thing about Newton is that um, he recognized what he did as a as a um, captain of a slave ship and he felt deep deep guilt about that and he testified in parliament for william wilberforce and his testimony was key to bringing about the end of the slave trade very interesting like i've read 
his testimony because everybody in parliament says, oh, the slaves, they got it good. They love, you know, the West Indies. This is, you know, it's way better than Africa. And, and, and Newton says, let me tell you what it's like on a slave ship. And so he gave testimony. And that was a key testimony. And Newton, one of the things about Newton that uh, everybody was attracted to is that he understood his poverty. He was poor in spirit. And he also understood God's grace. And so he could write a hymn for education, for his Sunday worship, um, a hymn that began, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And he knew, he says, it is grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. And that's key. I mean, Newton recognized that he brought nothing to the table that would qualify him. But it was Jesus's grace that he was dependent upon. Or as um, another great hymn puts it, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. And uh, one of the things about Newton, I, I can go on about Newton, but I won't. Um, on his, when he was dying, he, he, he's, he's quoted as saying, hey, two things I remember, two things I remember. What are the two things? I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. And as a result, he lived with this lightness in life. He was a very good pastor. And he, he demonstrates the difference between living our life landlocked or shipwrecked. <laughs> when you're landlocked, you're okay. When you're shipwrecked and you're floating in the sea, you have to grab on to whatever you can to survive. And that is being poor in spirit. We bring nothing to the table. We, are, we need to cling to Jesus to survive. So the last thing I want to just touch on is this. Okay, we are called to be poor in spirit. How, how can we be rich toward God? What does it mean to look like a poor in spirit kind of person? First off, we need to recognize to be poor in spirit, again, does not mean you're not joyful. In fact, when you're poor in spirit, you are joyful. To be poor in spirit is a gateway to joy. Why? Because it says, hey, I can be completely dependent upon God, but that's okay. God is good, and he loves me. And when we are dependent upon God, we are truly free. And that's one of the paradoxes of the Christian life. What does uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said? When God calls a man, he bids him to come and die. When we die, we live, right? Those are the paradoxes. When we're slave, we're free. We are rich with the identity that only God and Jesus can give us. Now, to rely on God, to be poor in spirit, to say, I, I bring nothing to the table, I need to depend upon God, may sound like a cop-out. It's like, oh, can't you live life? Can't you, can't you manage life on your own? What's this let go, let God kind of stuff? But no. To, to be poor in spirit means you're trusting God for everything. And when you truly trust in God for everything, you know what that stops you from becoming? A workaholic. 
Because a workaholic goes behind a lot of workaholism is I need to be somebody, I need to be better, or I need to get, I need the security, I need to control. It's it's all these things that is behind workaholism. When you're truly um, poor in spirit, you're not going to be a workaholic. And it's easy to see yourself as indispensable, that everything depends upon you to work out right. Have you ever had that attitude at work? (laughs) If a job's going to be done right, I will do it myself. Anybody here like that? (laughs) I know some of you who are like this, but I won't point you out. (laughs) I know that I'm often like this too. It's like, I think I can do this. Yeah. And what happens when we think we're indispensable and if the job is to be done right, we will do it. We are in control. And that leads to what is the trunk of the tree? That has many, has seven deadly sins. Pride, yes. And this idea of I am indispensable and I can do all these things. And I'll tell you, this is an occupational hazard for pastors. Oh, busy pastor. Look how important I am. Busy, busy, busy. Actually, it's, it runs deep in... Uh, when I when I when I lived in China, they, you would greet somebody on the street, and you'd walk along, and he'd yeah, meow meow, chirfana meow, yeah, I've eaten, and then you say, ni mangma, and how would you answer, Sebastian? If I said ni mangma, what would you say? Oh man, feitan man, yeah, really busy, right? yeah, so busy, right? Because it's just, it's just, it's what we do, right? It's what we, yeah. And the reality is, is that we're only one person. And there's only so much that one person can do. As one guy puts it, he goes, there, there is a Messiah, but here's the news. It's not you. <laughs> and so spiritual poverty frees us from the need for constant motion, constant work, constant activity. Because it allows us to say no from time to time. And I find when I try to do everything, I get distracted. And I drop balls all the time. (laughs) And in the end, I generally annoy other people. But the poverty of spirit is not a road to sadness. It is a path to freedom. As one guy puts it, I hereby renounce the need to be CEO of the world and of my life. And uh, I don't know about you, but this is a big, big story in my life. You know, just trying to be in control, get on top of things, to impress. um, Basically the opposite of being poor in spirit. And when I came to faith, I'll tell you, there was so much. when When I asked Jesus, when I gave my life to Jesus in that hotel room in Shanghai all those years ago, 30 years ago almost. Um, there was such a weight that was taken off my back. And do you know what the biggest weight was? Is the fact that I, I no longer had to be God of my life. Now, that sounds funny, but I really was God of my life. And I was trying to instill meaning. I was trying to instill some kind of truth, some kind of something into my life. And it was going nowhere. And when I gave my life to Jesus, I was free. I was free. I didn't care. I said, Jesus, if you are Jesus, if you are God, then 
You figure out my life. You created me. I live, I breathe, I have my being because of you. You got, you got me into this world. I'll give my life to you. You, you figure things out. Oh. Have you ever had that experience? It is freedom. It is so much freedom. It's just like, I don't have to be God of my life anymore. Now that it's, you have to, one, you have to trust that Jesus is good and trust him with your life. But that's okay, because he says, I am the truth, the life, and the way. And in his resurrection, he vindicates everything that he says about who he is. And so we can trust him. And I think when, when, we, um, when we live in poverty of spirit, do you know what happens? I think it creates a certain lightness in our life. There's a, there's a great line by a guy named G.K. Ch- uh, Chesterton, George MacDonald, who is Lewis's mentor, spiritual mentor. And uh, George MacDonald once said um, in our world, he says, for we have grown old and our heavenly father is younger than we. Isn't that an interesting line? For we have grown old and sometimes we're more serious than God or so serious. This poverty of spirit gives us freedom. And it, I think it creates a lightness to this life because I got nothing. I really have nothing. And that's my posture. And so I came across this, I don't know if you guys like it, but I thought it was kind of an interesting uh, quote by this. Uh, he's a Jesuit thinker from, uh, or a writer. I don't know. If he, yeah, he was a writer from the uh, early 20th century. He says, let me have too deep a sense of humor ever to be proud. I like that. Let me to know my absurdity before I act before I act absurdly. Let me realize that when I'm humble, I'm most human, most truthful, and most worthy of your serious consideration. And it's that poverty of spirit when we don't take ourselves too seriously. And, and we recognize that that Jesus has it. He knows us. And our life is in his hands. And I think when we do that, I think we can enter freedom. Does that make sense? Right. Well, there's our first beatitude. Let me uh, pray and then we'll see if there's any questions. Okay. Jesus, we come before you recognizing again, we are completely dependent upon you. We bring nothing to the table. Our lives will only work. When we recognize that we have nothing, when we when we enter into this life that you're offering us, this new humanity through poverty of spirit, being poor in spirit. Your word tells us for those who are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so, Lord, for each one of us tonight, may we be reminded of the fact that we don't have it all together. And if we try to live the Christian life on our own, we're not going to get very far. And so we come to the realization that we don't have what it takes. And you look at us and you say, congratulations, we're finally beginning to get it. May that be our posture. And may we never move beyond this. This is the entrance into this new humanity that you're describing here. 
And so we enter into this um, with joy, but we enter into this recognizing that we are completely dependent upon you. So continue to guide us in this journey, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.